The Guardian. Welcome to Big Picture Politics, Guardian Australia's new politics podcast. I'm Lenore Taylor, political editor for Guardian Australia. Last year, the Australian electorate flat down refused to accept Tony Abbott's first budget. And then voters booted out Conservative governments in Victoria and New South Wales. And we started to hear this theme. We kept getting told this meant reform was dead, that the political system was kaput, in crisis, even that voters were too caught up with their own short-term selfish needs to understand the long-term needs of the nation. Now that New South Wales voters have returned to the Baird government despite not particularly liking its plan to lease electricity poles and wires, some of the same commentators are suggesting all may not be lost after all, if we just manage to find courageous and charismatic leaders like Mike Baird. The aim of this first big picture is to try to move away from sweeping generalisations on the basis of each election result to consider what is actually going on and whether we can hold out hope that politicians might keep promises or reach some kind of broad understanding on the big stuff, that they might agree on things that really do need to change, that they might stop just undoing what the last government did. Personally, I think it's way early to say the system is broken because in recent years, no politician has really properly tried. Kevin Rudd believed in the need to tackle climate change, but then when the Senate blocked him and Tony Abbott began his big anti-carbon tax crusade, Rudd headed for the hills. He didn't really argue the case for an emissions trading scheme and Labor spent most of the rest of that term arguing about its leadership. Tony Abbott promised explicitly not to cut health and education and then he did without ever explaining why he chose those cuts and not different ones, except to keep saying he was cleaning up Labor's mess, which of course isn't any kind of explanation of his choices. Maybe we voters are quite reasonably and understandably volatile because we keep having to choose between least worst options and then the least worst option we choose breaks promises and feeds us insulting, meaningless lines and generally treats us like mugs. I think as voters, we might be quite entitled to say to politicians... It's not us that's the problem, it's you. But politicians and ex-politicians may, of course, choose to differ. And today, I'm joined by one of each, the former Liberal leader, Dr John Hewson, and the Deputy Labor leader, Tanya Plibersek. Thanks to you both for being here. It's a pleasure. John Hewson, whenever I ask a politician why they don't put out detailed policies well ahead of an election, they say, because fight back. I've got to say 1993 was the first election I ever covered and the best by far and away because it really was a battle of ideas. But the lesson politicians learned seems to be don't do what Hewson did. So are you the guy who killed reform? And could we finally be at the point where whatever lesson politicians thought they learnt from you, they're starting to reconsider it? Uh, Look, yeah, it's true that I guess most people say they're putting out thousands of pages of policy detail was the longest political suicide note in history. So it was you? Yeah, it was me. And they've they've held me accountable for that in that sense. But a number of other things have happened in that since then as well. Um, I think that was the first time we saw a genuine scare campaign run um, by somebody who'd actually argued the reverse in his own time as uh, trying to get the uh, Hawke-Keating tax package up in in uh, in eighty five, I mean, he he gave a passionate speech in the parliament so afterwards, saying he'd fight, he'd die fighting for GST, you know, and uh, then all of a sudden it he was, lived fighting not for one, and then he actually was able to turn the tables on me without any reference back to that. That was the start of a scare campaign. I think technology and the increasingly short term focus of media and 
desire of uh, the electorate for sort of instantaneous solutions, a whole host of factors have compounded the problem. So in the end, I guess, at the last election, we ended up with almost dot points as policies, you know, stop the boats, fix the budget, create two million jobs and no indication of how and lots of other commitments which in the end were obviously going to have to be broken because they didn't add up. You couldn't have all these expenditure commitments in education and health and the ABC and also going to cut company tax and personal tax and fix the budget. It just didn't add up. It was quite clear that uh, we sort of got to a very cynical point, I think, where those promises were going to be broken. I think probably most of the electorate would recognise that they, that politicians today would, would uh, intend to break promises. So it's sort of we've got to the lowest common denominator, I hope, in terms of that process. So and, can uh, it go up, or are you giving up? Well, hope? Mike Baird is an example of of a small step in the right direction, in the sense that. I think his success as a political leader was that he managed to get sort of a standing in the community as being, you know, worried about humanity and, and compassion and sensitivity and so on, on the one hand, but at the same time being prepared to argue for a particular policy and, and to stay there. Uh, despite a fairly you know, significant scare campaign against him. And the fact that he won, I think, will give him great heart and I probably might encourage others to do a bit more. And I don't think in the circumstances that Abbott's second budget, uh, probably a pre-election budget in a sense, can't uh, do anything else but try and learn from that. Because uh, I'd be silly to go back and try and do what they did last time, which obviously didn't work. Uh, so I do think that um, I'm hopeful, it's a bit early to say, but I'm hopeful that Factors are coming together now to start to uh, to change the nature of politics. And we a lot of this needs all the big issues. They need a layer of bipartisan support. And in, just in the tax area in the last few days, superannuation, both sides are saying it's got to be fixed. It's too obscenely biased in favour of the wealthy. And, of course, one of the reasons why the last budget was canned was its visible inequity. It's, uh, it's uh, unfairness. And in that sense, um, maybe we're starting to see this where there are some changes that they'll have to agree to. So, Tani Plibersek, do you see signs of hope? Well, there's a couple of things I'd say. The, the first is um, I'm not sure that you can claim um, privatisation of poles and wires as a great economic reform. It's a, it's a change that releases money for other uses. Um, but it, it's not uh, really... Um, it's not a particularly innovative or thoughtful approach to the challenges that beset us. Uh, I have, um, I think we've done some pretty big changes and important reforms in recent years, like the Gonski School Education Funding Reforms, like the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And one of the, the, signi- the one of the signature things that you see in each large reform is that there's a community campaign that builds support and backs it and that gives permission for that bipartisanship. Of course the the federal coalition were um, initially not in favour of the Gonski School Education Funding Reforms but there was just an overwhelming case made by the public for them. But they're still not entirely in favour of them and they're still saying they're going to undo them possibly after four years so isn't that part of the problem that even when there's a case for change and even when there's broad public support. Yeah. No, they were dragged kicking and screaming. Like Christopher Pine until the very last few days was saying over my dead body and then there was an overwhelming case made to him and he changed. There's no, um, you know, deep and abiding sincerity and commitment to the things he said about Gonski, you know, in order well, to win a few no votes. there's also no money. But... 
No, no, but uh, I think when you have had that sort of public support built up uh, and people are actually, actually really understand what's being proposed and feel attached to it in the way they feel attached to Medicare, in the way they you know, feel attached to a, a number of the big social policies that we have, it's pretty hard then for a government to... Um, to uh, back away from it. You see the trouble that the Liberals have had trying to do the GP co-payment and undermine the universality of Medicare. So I think it is important to build community support for uh, the big changes. Uh, and on the economic reforms, I, I think um, John's quite right to say that there have been you know, the discussions about the tax um, discussion paper that's come out. Um, uh, we are open to supporting changes that are positive changes. We had a proposal ourselves for superannuation balances of more than $2 million. Um, We were legislating that before the last election. If it's a good proposal, we'll back it. But one of the challenges is when you do support something, there's no coverage for that. There's only coverage of the conflict. So um, Labor backed $20 billion worth of measures that improve the budget bottom line out of last year's budget. There's no focus on those measures. There's only the focus on the things that we're opposing. Okay, so to prove your point, (laughs) you immediately opposed any change to the GST when the tax paper came out. Why would you do that? Why would you rule it out right from the get-go? But because the GST is a regressive tax, so we're interested in carbon tax, a regressive tax, and you know, poor families pay more of their income in power bills, and you compensated them for that. So why rule out this regressive tax? We more than compensated them for any increase to their living expenses. Compensate them for a change in the GST. Well, because we say that um, that. Uh, an additional tax on all of the necessities of life is bound to be regressive and uh, if you um, if you have a huge compensation program it's hard to see how the, the, the benefit of increasing the tax uh, really translates into greater economic benefit for the nation. But what if it was an increase in the rate not broadening the base? That wouldn't go on to the necessities that would leave them GST free. Why would you just rule it out right from the get go well because uh, because poorer people still spend the greatest proportion of their income, and wealthier people have more opportunity to save and invest John you're a GST expert <laughs> he sure is two points. there's been one one other significant shift since the late eighties early nineties and and it's in the nature of politics itself. I saw my role as opposition leader as sort of trying to set the agenda and, and get the government to come in behind that. And so I argued things that today you'd never hear argued. I mean, zero tariff protection made it easy for Keating to cut protection to 5, 10, 15 percent, uh, put up interest rates uh, because if you don't put them up now, you put them up higher later and you'll cause a recession. And, um, you know, I did it on you know, in response to Tinnemus Square, any one of those areas. We just tried to get out in front of the issue, set the agenda. Today, it's, you know, you give up hope and it's all about nope. You, Abbott made it a negative, right? That's an absolute negative. And, and it's carried on. And the negativity of opposition is a problem. Uh, the second thing, just on the GST, um, look, I, I tried to demonstrate is that you can actually take the opportunity, because you generate so much revenue off a broad tax base, and, you know, the, the recommendations that came out this week or the paper that came out is pretty much like ASPE was in 75. You've got to broaden the tax base. Uh, this, we haven't made too much progress in doing that. Um, but if you are going to broaden the base, you're going to collect a lot of revenue, which you can then use to not just compensate, but you can adjust the transfer system as well. And I tried to make this point by saying, okay, pensioners earn a 15% GST, as I 
were proposed, they'll be worse off. We could compensate them for 15. But in those days, the pension was so low relative to what was a sustainable level of you know, living standard for a pensioner at about $20, I think, left in their pocket after they paid for the nursing home bed, for example, um, you know, which was to cover the gifts for the grandkids and the smoking and, and grog and everything else. It was ridiculous. I said, OK, why don't we just say that we'll double the pension? So we'll, we'll, we'll fix that inequity in the system and give them access to free medical insurance and, and adjust some of the pharmaceutical medical benefits to favour the aged. And so you can make the point that you had a capacity to not just compensate, but to actually change the nature of the tax and transfer system, because you can use part of it to reform tax and part of it to do that. And that's, the tragedy is that that sort of detail got lost in the you know, in a scare campaign and how dare you tax pensioners. But nobody looked at the detail. And you have another problem. I mean, I guess some people in the age sector said to me, oh, you won't do that. I just want to say, the, the, the idea that there's, um, there's no propositions and no imagination or bravery at the moment is one that I hear quite often and I really have to take issue with it because we've we've come uh, into opposition and we've said we'll stick to a price on carbon. The most contentious issue of the last election in many respects, we've said, okay, we're sticking to our values, we're going to keep to a price on carbon. We've also made announcements about multinational tax and domestic violence and um, as, as you can see from Chris Bowen's interaction with Joe Hockey over the last few days, we've been working on a lot of um, tax policies as well. So I think that there there is a degree of um, uh, willingness to be brave and to be constructive and to put ideas out there. And I don't think you can apply equally uh, equal criticism to the way that Tony Abbott behaved in opposition to the way that we're behaving in opposition. There, there were things that he opposed that were basically Liberal Party policy, like the the um, instant asset tax write-off for small business. Like I, I have ne- I never imagined you'd have a Liberal government um, bagging a tax cut for small business. And even, um, for example, uh, well, the um, Malaysia agreement uh, that would have um, seen us taking uh, refugees from Malaysia when they took our asylum seekers. We had Joe Hockey crying in the parliament saying, you know, over his dead body would he be party to this sort of arrangement. And you look at their their refugee policy since the election, it, it, it is pretty rich, some of the things they said no to, including things like... Uh, a means testing of private health insurance, means testing of family tax benefits. Uh, in my own area, getting rid of um, the dental scheme that had blown out, it, it was costing every month what it was supposed to cost annually. Um, they opposed getting rid of that. But so far, when I talk to Labor Party people in private about, well, when are we going to see the big ideas in the year of big ideas, they say exactly what the coalition used to say in opposition, which is, why would we make ourselves a target now? It's still 18 months to an election. Why would we spell out our savings now? The government will just pocket them and use the proceeds for well, their own priorities. we've already spelled out one. We've already spelled out the well, national one, anti-cash, uh, multinational sure, tax one. one limited policy. But even in direction... We're not even halfway through the election well, but, but, I mean, the question is, isn't... Is it time for an opposition to break the small target mould and but actually we, be a big target? And I'm, and I'm saying to, to the, you, Lenore, go back to the Houston model. The, the most controversial issue in the last election, carbon pricing. We've already said we're sticking to that. But like we you don't could, know what kind could of carbon price be we a bigger target? How? Well, except I mean, it hasn't been a big target because you said it in theory, but you haven't told us anything about how you would do it. Yeah, I I think that that's a pretty unfair criticism, given that what we got from Tony Abbott at the time of the last election was the Real Solutions pamphlet that had 
no detail about anything they were going to do. And a very clear statement the night before the election, no cuts to health, no cuts to education, no cuts to the ABC or SBS, no change to pensions and no new taxes. Like that was the mantra and he's done the exact opposite. So what about the factors that uh, John mentioned that do seem to make it harder to make a case now, like the 24-hour media cycle that does amplify sort of trivial missteps or misspeakings or whatever, isn't all that good at complex argument, uh, combined with all the same old problems like not controlling the Senate? Is it harder to make a case for change now? Is it possible? Are you changing the way that you have to go about it? I think it's always been hard to make a case for change. Uh, and John probably would agree with me on that one. Mm. But um, I, th- I kind of think that's our bread and butter. Like That's our that's our challenge and that's our responsibility. And uh, it's not it's not easy, but it, it's you know, that's what sort we get paid to turn up to work process. for. You've got to start by getting the electorate to sign off on the issue, the challenge, the problem, realistically understand what it is. Then you've got to be prepared, I think, if you're owning that issue in government or in opposition to lay out the options. There are a range of options in any policy and get them debating the alternatives and what they mean. And then in the end, uh, you have to pick one of them and say, this is our policy and this is what we're going to do and we're going to go out and argue and and fight for it. And one of the things that I I was really disappointed about with with Julia Gillard is, okay, she changed her mind on the carbon price and politically that was, you know, a difficult thing. But why she didn't spend the next several months just linking the science to the issue and then arguing why you do it that way and going to do it? Because by just announcing it in February and not really saying anything more about it to July, Tony Abbott had a field day every day being able to be negative and he made some outrageous statements and you know, ac- uh, suggestions. $100 as dollar lamb ha- legs. Oh, yeah, and, you know, and, you know, Wyala, off, and you know, all this off sort of Off the nonsense. face of the map. But he was able to get away with it. He was yeah. able to build a momentum of negativity, which if, if they'd been out there on the other side really saying, look, you know, the science is in. It's, it's uncontested when you've got you know, 97% of peer assessed climate scientists saying we've got a problem. We've got to look at the solutions. These are the solutions. We picked this one. This is why we're doing it this way. And, you know, and um, it, it would have been a very significant informed debate. But I think one of the things that people forget about the, the climate change argument, the, um, you know, Julia. Uh, position on it, that that day before the election, the interview she did in Brisbane, she said there will be no carbon tax under a government I lead. The very next sentence is, but we will put a price on carbon. And what changed after the election was we were dealing with the Greens who wanted a fixed price, not a floating price. That That's the difference. And then Julia, it's put to Julia, isn't a fixed price a tax? And she admits, mm. yes, the fixed price is like a tax. That's a scare campaign. Yeah, I mean, I must bullseye. say that in, in terms of this, this area of negativity, the Greens have been amazing. I mean, they get a solution from, from Kevin. Gillard, which is, Kevin. No, from Kevin, Kevin first. first. They bomb that. And they bomb that, which, you know, was ridiculous given their position. But more recently, to show the extent of their negativity now, they get the opportunity to support a uh, you know, resumption of the indexation of fuel excise, and they oppose it. Yeah. So so how do you think the government's going then in making the case for changes? 
going through that three-step process that you set up. For example, the intergenerational report. I mean, that just turned into a political exercise. Well, it was very political because of the way they focused it in on this chart that had three scenarios, the one you'd get if the opposition had stayed in government, the one we wanted, and where we've ended up in the middle. And and, And uh, the assumption that no one would do anything for the next 40 years. Yeah, 40 years you'd have 2.8% growth and flat inflation. And and also their assumptions about our policies included some of their spending. It was actually based on the... um, the, uh, my EFO, not PFO. For, so it's based on the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, right. not the pre-election uh, outlook. And look, but, and, and just, just one thing that staggered me this week uh, was when, when Hockey released the tax paper on Monday, right? I thought he'd be 26 hours a day, every day between now and whenever they do something, developing the argument and, and, and then putting out the options and then ultimately picking on, taking it to the next election. I thought he'd be doing it. I did 7.30 report on that day and I said, oh, I guess you've got hockey on time. Oh, no, he won't do it. No. Why wouldn't you not do it? So, so you think, so just to... I just find that incredible. And, and, and also, to go back, though, really so sell it and they didn't sell the budget. He, he's, got, he's also been shut down by his colleagues. So he's going out proposing things and then he's got some of his colleagues, Steve Chobo and others say, oh, no, that, that won't happen. Yeah, but you know, you've got, there's no strategy around an announcement. There's no policy framework. I mean, you announce a co-payment in, in the health sector right? without a health policy, within which you can hope to understand it. And, it, and people sort of thought, okay, well, to the extent they support it, well, I guess it's going to sort of, in quotes, fix the health system. Actually, no, the Reverend Day doesn't go to the health system. It's going to something else. And these mixed messages, the lack of strategy around a decision is, ma- is a major problem in trying to stimulate a mature okay, debate. Okay, so on tax, on tax, are we going to, do you think this will lead to anything then, given what you just said? Well, I suspect what they will do is they'll pick a few things that they have to do. I mean, there are pressure points. One is company tax rates. That's a real pressure point. And the, the lack of the unsustainability of the income tax system generally, that's a pressure point. Bracket creep within that's the other pressure point. Those two things they'll have to deal with. Okay, and they'll probably have to get bipartisan support to do that. But I don't think anyone's going to stand up and say you shouldn't get back bracket creep. So in a sense, they'll have to do that. And lowering the company tax rate, and they want to lower the, the, the company tax rate for small business more, I imagine they'll do those two things. But none of that explains to us how the states are going to get the money to make up for the $80 billion on health and, and education they, they, that were taken out of the last budget. Sitting out there is the I elephant mean, in the room, an $80 billion cut in education health funding to the states over 10 years which, you know, the states will increasingly scream about because oh, it didn't impact too much on the first budget. It starts to impact. So that's another pressure point. They're going to have to have an explanation for that. And I think there were two simplistic views behind that, I think, as far as I can tell. You know, it's, it's a guess. But one was to try and force the states to look at the GST and, and come back with a proposal. Or well, the other one was to say to the states, OK, look, why don't you argue for a share of income tax revenue, which is one of the people on the Audit Commission's baby. You know, mm, they really mm, wanted to see which that. Which they respectfully declined to do. Yeah. Well, and Mike, so, no, so Mike you, Baird you can't, kind of toyed with something. it a bit the other day. Well, Mike Baird supports it. I mean, a couple of the premiers support it. A couple of them oppose it. But, you know, what a mess that is. I mean, it was a clever political move by Howard at the time to say, I've given the revenue to the states. They all come on side. And then, you know, but it neutered it as a fiscal instrument and neutered it from any sensible discussion because you not only got the debate about the coverage and the level of the tax, but you got the distribution angle where people like, you know, Western Australia are going to actually be flat out opposing that distribution. And everything that they want to see done is contingent on them getting a better deal, even though for many years they had a very good deal, a generous deal. So there's a lot of um, politics now, layers of politics that have come over and above what was there originally. So, so do you think tax reform's possible? Oh, of course it is. And, and How? I, well, I... I 
I think if you listen to what Chris Bowen's been saying the last couple of days, it's very clear that we're open for a conversation about sensible tax reform, uh, and particularly in this area of very high superannuation balances. Um, And, I mean, carbon pricing... um, uh, unpopular as it was, is actually uh, an important um, element of tax reform as well. Like uh, taxing things, revenue foregone. It, it's uh, it's <laughs> about fifteen billion dollars, I think, was the revenue foregone <laughs> when they number. got they got rid of carbon pricing and kept the compensation. Um, and the minerals resource rent tax again was an effort um, to uh, uh, you know get some greater benefit from the mineral resources that belong to all Australians. It's not that we haven't been prepared to do hard things in the area of taxation. So, is another problem that sometimes we get uh, delivered policies which are really only. Um, pretending to do things, and I'm thinking about the coalition's carbon policy here, it's still a work in progress, but most observers looking at it don't think it actually does the job. It's really just there to look like it's doing the job. What do you think about that, John? Well, I think the whole area of climate change is going to change dramatically in the course of this year. I mean, this Paris process, which is driving people to to countries to declare their emissions reduction targets, realistic ones, and uh, led by a coalition of the Chinese and the Americans, which a lot of people said would never happen, uh, is actually, and the Europeans have come in strongly behind that now, and and, uh, so have other countries. And that's going to change the nature of the debate. Now, you know, I have to go back to the time Tony was my press sec. I think he's got the, the unique capacity to just arrive one day in Parliament House and say, see, as I always said, if the world moved, I'd move with it. <laughs> and so we'll change. And uh, the whole really? Event, once you, you really think he would you'll do get, that? You'll get emissions reduction target. He's got a lot of pressure in Cabinet. Look, Julie rolled him on Lima, for example, in Cabinet. There's a lot of pressure in there that we've got to be part of this game. We can't be a laggard. We're looking ridiculous by being a laggard. So in those circumstances, I think they'll be driven to response. And the outcome of an emissions reduction agreement is actually going to be some of the financial sector saying, well, we can actually try carbon Absolutely. credits now, but, yeah. and then you'll get a price. It might not come in the next year or two, but it will come. And in that sense, uh, you know, we need to have an answer about that. Can we just get sides. this back just a few steps, though? So let's assume that you're right. And at some point, Tony Abbott came into the parliament and said, OK, the world's changed. I'm going to adopt... You might not say it in the parliament. You might say it at a football game. <laughs> <laughs> I'll adopt a tougher target for emissions reductions post-2020. There's still a kind of minor problem that there's no policy to get there. No, well, I mean, if I look at the direct action plan, I mean, it, it has some elements that can make a big difference. Don't get me wrong. I mean, a proper soil carbon policy can basically do it if they do it properly. Um, you can't probably plant enough trees to do it. But I suspect that with the money they've allocated, the only way they'll get to a 5% reduction is to buy international they've credits, that out. which does nothing really but about our emissions problem. And, they've and that will be laid bare yeah. at some point when uh, we've gone through a couple of auctions, I suppose. And, uh, and you know, I fear that these auctions will be paying those who would otherwise or should otherwise have reduced their emissions to reduce their emissions. Uh, that's not the way. It should be a penalty for those who pollute. Not a, not but a we've just seen a paper do on what the they penalties, have done anyway. and we've just seen a paper on their proposed penalties and safeguards, and it doesn't look like they'll be any, from what I can no, tell. No, I, I read it quickly, but I, I thought I'd have to go back and read it again. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, essentially, we had a proposition that 
uh, raised money by penalising big polluters. They've got a proposition that spends money, mm. perhaps to reduce pollution. So you've got a reduced environmental benefit, um, but you've also got the cost of the budget of yeah. a, a weaker policy. Over many years in the environment area, go back several decades, the mining sector and other sectors were fundamentally cleaned up by penalties. You know, you can't pollute the river, you can't, you've got to do something about that smokestack, you got whatever it was. And everybody accepted that was reasonable. You know, the polluters ought to pay. And then suddenly polluters don't have to pay, actually we'll pay them to do what they'd otherwise do. That It's turned it to a ridiculous position where most of the people in the industry, I mean, I'm sure the big energy companies just rubbing their hands saying, well, we can, we can block renewable energy over here and at the same time we'll get you know, compensated for what we've got to do anyway, which is start phasing down some of these old dirty power plants and, and move to you know, gas-fired power plants or whatever it is that they do. There's the um, environmental risks of doing nothing. There's the reputational risks that you've pointed out of Australia yes. being out of the mainstream internationally. But there's also the economic risk of the whole world moving in a particular Absolutely. direction and us being left behind. Well, I think it's one stage worse than that because I've spent now 20 years arguing this case and building businesses to prove the point. But we should have a sensible response to climate change should be a technological revolution, not just in renewables, in energy efficiency, alternative technology. We can't see many of these now. They'll come in time. Uh, We've done a lot of them myself. I mean, first stage was pretty rudimentary. Second, third, fourth stage generations of technologies are revolutionary. And and, uh, we could have been on the cutting edge of that we're making a transition from a, you know, a resources boom to whatever. We don't know what, the, what it is because most of the sectors you looked at are, look at are either in decline or flat. And so where are we going to get the jobs from, the growth from? We can't, we aren't gonna, we're going to have a growth number probably under two rather than uh, three and a half or three and a quarter what we need to just stabilise unemployment. So we have very, very significant challenges coming. And here's a whole area of, of new industry and, it's, and, and spinning off that, okay, you're going to have to have a good education and training system. You're going to have to have sensible industrialisation policy, sensible, sensible infrastructure policies. You can feed it all off it. Uh, but, you know, we sit back and say, oh, well, the growth rate's going to slow, standard living's going to fall, productivity's flat. And we have a standoff yeah, on we're, the we're renewable energy up before target. We've, and we've missed a great opportunity. And that's, that's the thing that really worries me about climate change. I think the renewable energy um, target's a great great example. We we had the fourth most attractive investment environment for renewables in the world. We've seen a 90% decline in investment in large-scale renewables. And the rest of the world's seen a 16% increase. We've seen a 90% fall. Okay, so let's call it then. Is reform just resting? Is there a leader, a party, a process that's going to actually pick up the big challenges that Australia faces and argue the case and get them done. And double bunga last question because I can. Um, Tell me the two or three biggest things that you think should be on the priority list for whomever that leader is. Start with you, John. Uh, Look, I think it comes down to a question of leadership being prepared to very carefully decide that you are not going to play the 24-hour media cycle game, that you're going to... um, lead on a number of key issues and be be prepared to get out and prepare the ground for that in the three-stage process we talked about. I think that's fundamentally important and uh, it's going to take uh, quite a shift in the current political process for that to occur and then for them to be able to sustain that either within their own party or in the broader Australian So community. who's going to do it? No, I'm not going to pick winners here. And three, <laughs> what about, okay, what and, about three priorities? And, and look, I, I, I think right now we have a unique opportunity with the Federation and Tax Reviews together to restructure the Federation properly 
and that's not as simple as somebody as people have said. But allocate responsibilities properly, and it's a two-way street. Some things have to be national. I would like to see environment national, I'd like to see industrial relations national. While at the same time, maybe giving schools and universities and so on to the states, hospitals to the states. You, you can do that and restructure government properly, and then have the debate, a sensitive debate about the most efficient, fair, and simple way to fund that in the tax. That to me is the big challenge. It's sitting there because they've created that opportunity. Uh, not sure that we'll see any leadership of substance in that area. Um, sure. se- secondly, I think you'd, uh, I'd like to see a, a national program to say double our productivity in the next 10 years. And that's not a single policy solution. That's going to go through the whole area of policy, education, training, industrial relations, you know, micro reforms, so on. And, and spell it out under the umbrella of a, of a, of a national objective to do something about that. Uh, and I think thirdly, to me, get out of this ridiculous laggard position on climate change and go back to we punched above our weight in the development of Kyoto Protocol and we got ourselves a very good deal within that protocol as a nation. Um, we're foregoing that opportunity, and as I said, we're missing the technological revolution that might give us an industrial base going forward. And some people are do, doing... You know, look, I mean, Joe Wetherill's actually prepared to have a Royal Commission on Nuclear to get sensible debate, because you won't get it any other way. And, uh, and so some, there are elements of it happening. I mean, some of the states are, are moving on renewables quite decisively, things like that, but it's not... You know, it's just a, a skerrick of what should be a, a complete but, industrial revolution. But I have to ask you just finally, do you think Tony Abbott is going to lead in any of those three areas? I think by default he might have to, in the sense that uh, Howard had his back to the wall in 98 and then you know, decided that he'd better stand for something substantive because he got there in 96 without any policy detail at all. Uh, you know, just vote for me, you know, and you hate that guy, vote for me sort of thing. Uh, and he, he, he uh, took a political risk and he, you know, he, he got the mandate. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I think he, he failed to deliver <clears throat> excuse me, effectively on that mandate, didn't take the opportunity that was really there uh, to do it properly. But, um, yeah, I think uh, Abbott went through that experience. So I think he understands that at some point you do have to stand up and be counted. And Tanya? I can almost not remember the question. I can repeat it if you like. No, um, what what John was saying about productivity, I I think of that in a slightly different way, but I also think it's one of the central issues. And I think about I think about it as jobs of the future. What kind of work will we do, be doing? What, what will the industries be? Um, how do we prepare people for it? How do we enable participation in the workforce? Uh, and um, and that does bring in all of those issues about uh, education from you know pre-kinder to right to the universities sector, but it also is a challenge for us to think beyond the next you know three years, five years, ten years to. Uh, the type of industries that we're, uh, that Australia can um, can benefit from. That means what's our place in the world, what are our relationships with our trading partners and neighbours, what will the conditions of work be like, how do people manage their work and family responsibilities. Um, and, uh, and of course, I agree with John about the, the challenge of climate change being the one of the great and, and central and unanswered questions right now. Um, the question of leadership, uh, I... Th- I absolutely say that we are up for some um, complex and difficult discussions and I, th- I think uh, I 
probably John doesn't agree with this bit, but I think people join the Labor Party because they <laughs> love the policy detail. Like we have more arguments at our conferences about things that we broadly agree on, but we're you know fighting over the detail about uh, how they should be implemented. I have a wife that eats me every day from the left. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and and it's one of the things that we get greatest. Um, greatest intellectual satisfaction from our, our Labor Party people. So uh, we're absolutely up for those um, uh, hard decisions, but uh, only only if they're fair. The reason that we've opposed some of the ones from the last budget, we're not going to change on that because they're just not fair. Well, it's with some satisfaction then that we end our discussion with agreement on at least two of the big challenges for reform, if not on who might or might not deliver them. And thanks very much for joining me for this first Big Picture Politics podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's discussion and this episode. Thank you for joining us. You can read more from me and the rest of the politics team in Canberra at theguardian.com slash au. There you'll also find our podcast page with a list of everything we've talked about plus some links to extra reading. I'm Lenore Taylor. Thanks to guests Tanya Plibersek and John Hewson. This podcast was produced by Fred McConnell and Miles Martignoni. Audio engineering by Jason Nicholas. Hope you'll join us next time for more Big Picture Politics. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.